electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. Because my job is not just to entertain, but also to educate and teach on this glorious day. So call me one 800 cbc or tweet me at Jim Kramer. All right, today's action. Today's action is what, I, is what peak inflation looks like. We got a consumer price index number that was down versus last month. And what happened? Well, the Dow roared 535 points. S&P surged 2.13%. And the NASDAQ pulled 2.89%. House of pleasure. Or to put it another way, peak inflation is nirvana for stocks, especially for out-of-favor stocks like fast-growing tech plays, financials, consumer discretionary names. That means you can buy everything from Microsoft to Wells Fargo to Target, and even to Disney, which is roaring tonight after a smashing quarter. And I got to tell you, I would have been crushed if it weren't. And be sad, too. All right, now we've heard a lot of nonsense today. This is going to be the mean part of the segment. A lot of nonsense today from both extremes about the CPI number. President Biden crowed that we have 0% inflation, which is absurd. We have plenty of inflation. It just appears to have peaked. Then there's the other extreme, the camp that refuses to believe that the Fed can do anything right. These are the J-PAL haters, okay? They've made it personal as far as I'm concerned. They made it clear this number was ephemeral and will still require bold, aggressive action. Why? Because J-PAL is a fool who's so far behind the curve. I do not like these people, I am, I am. Both of these camps are motivated by ideology rather than the facts on the ground. I think it's insane not to recognize that PAL hit us with two 75 basis point rate hikes in a row. That's an extraordinary move, and it's working, darn it! For the last month, I've been saying we're at peak inflation because commodity prices have been collapsing. I 
mention this because I've seen so many tightening cycles that I actually know how they play out. Look, there's got to be some benefit to being old. This is the only one I can think of, frankly. Peak inflation starts from the ground up. You have to look at the individual companies that make things in this country. If you did that, instead of simply looking at big picture spending numbers, you actually would have seen this coming. Or if you watch Man Money, because I've been on this, this for maybe like six weeks. If you'd done the homework, you'd know virtually everything we make in this country is now in a glut or about to be because of double orders, supply chain problems that cleared up, truckers that went back to work, crops that survived, plastics and factories that are up and running again, or any number of situations where supply has simply overwhelmed demand. Clothes, box board, cell phones, televisions. At the same time, demand destruction has crushed gasoline and travel. It all came together at once in one beautiful number this morning. But if you've missed it, if you were only looking at the macro data before today, well, I got to tell you, go get another job. At least get out of my face. All right, now what happens next? How about the extremists will be completely wrong? They won't be ridiculed because they're above the fray, but they'll be completely wrong. If history is any guide, the Fed will raise interest rates one or even two more times, maybe 50 basis points each, with the last one being consistent with overkill. Why? Because the gluts we're experiencing are just now starting. They're just now getting bad. We're not in trough, for heaven's sake. We're in peak. Let me give you a textbook example. The most basic piece of tech, the DRAM semiconductor, was in a glut a month ago. Earlier this week, the CEO of Micron, a huge DRAM producer, came on Squawk in the street, and he said the glut is far worse than he thought. Micron's now canceling a billion dollars worth of equipment orders just to try to get rid of the glut. Good luck. Yes, the home building stocks are very strong because peak inflation means we'll be looking at lower mortgage rates. But it's way too late for housing to make a comeback. The inventory of both new and old uh, homes is growing by the day. Prices are going down. Cancellations are going up. Simple. Don't overthink it. What else? Lots of different parts of, uh, and pieces needed everywhere in the system. Auto, cars, factories. They've been double ordered. So you see, everything's been double ordered. The stuff that you saw that you needed at Home Depot, they were double ordering that stuff. But that demand is now vanishing because of recession fears and products that are finished. So now there'll be future guts, every, gluts everywhere that were double ordering. There'll be gluts in washing machines, in dishwashers, in axles, in windows, in tires. You know, this morning I saw this commercial. I was working out. Yeah, of course, to uh, you know, worldwide exchange. And uh, there was this ad of uh, some auto dealer. He was crowing that they have 150 new Hyundais available right now. Well, get used to having 1,000 cars available that you can't sell unless you slash prices. That was a little cinema verite. And gasoline is plentiful because there's less use at higher prices and also because there's been more production. This one's going Biden's way. Of course, you're going to hear that all this is outweighed by the labor shortage. I know the federal government has thrown acetylene on an already overheated job market with these two big spending bills. But I also know the newfound gluts will eventually cause a ton of layoffs. There are retailers that are hanging on by their fingernails. If the Fed takes rates up another 100 basis points, they'll be pushed under. In fact, any retailer that has a problem with financing, and you know which ones I'm talking about, might go under. In the meantime, Amazon's reduced its workforces by 100,000 people, and they can probably lower it by, I don't know, how about another 100,000? One by one, we'll hear about belt tightening at tech companies. Newsflash, they're all in belt tightening mode. Definitely not job offering mode. Where are all those computer science graduates going to go? 
I think they'll be competing against first-year employees who just got laid off, too. Oh, and so many of the companies that came public in the last two years are doing badly, and they're going to run out of money next year, particularly if their sales don't pick up, which they probably won't. Now, why can't people see all this? Because right now, it's mostly on the business side, not the consumer side. We call it the enterprise. You need to talk to all sorts of companies and have your ear to the ground. From my perch, I might talk to more CEOs than anyone in the world. These executives went from not having enough product to having too much product practically overnight. They're not talking about the great resignation anymore. They're talking about the great layoffs. It feels like nearly everyone has too many workers and too much inventory. And this happened all at once after a huge period where they couldn't get either the goods or the people to work for them. They now seem frozen, not knowing whether they need to cut prices aggressively or shrink their labor force, maybe be promotional, maybe not hire. That's what's in flux right now, people. You can see it every day from dozens of companies that just came public that have way too much hope and way too many people. Who needs all those advertising workers if there's a huge cut in ad spending? Who needs video game developers when there's far less gaming? Who needs all the programmers and engineers involved in the Internet when the Internet's slowing? Who needs people to make a power television sets when there's too much of those things, too? And they all have to be marked down. Hmm. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, Kramer's so excited about that peak inflation, but it doesn't sound too good. And that's true to an extent. If you're running a marginal enterprise, this will be a very tough time. But if you're in the stock market picking stocks, frankly, it is heaven. The averages tell you that all the bearish experts who endlessly roasted me are now on the wrong side of the trade. That's because the stocks figured out peak inflation long before the economists. It's why the averages have rallied nicely, even as the margins will still be squeezed as we adjust to the inventory gluts. The market simply anticipated the CPI reading by a month. The rallies today, they're simply a recognition that peak inflation is great for stock valuations. Some companies will absolutely be hurt by the upcoming recession, but others will see their stocks soar because they're worth more in an environment where inflation is at last possibly under control. So let me give you the bottom line here. The so-called experts who stared at the big picture economic data and more than inflation will be endless, that the Fed was pushing and stirring, all that nonsense, well, they turned out to be dead wrong. The stock market, on the other hand, totally saw peak inflation coming. I think you had to be deliberately obtuse to miss this because commodity prices have been collapsing for a while now. But now it's undeniable. Even the bears and my detractors are trying to deny it anyway, but we'll have no luck doing so. How about Bill in Texas? Bill. Hey, good afternoon, Jim. How are you today? I am doing well, Bill. How about you? Hello? Yeah, Bill, you got me. How you doing? I am doing great. I wanted to ask your uh, recommendation. I'm looking at investing a little money in retail space. And I know the big three, you know, Costco, Walmart, Target. But I'm looking at a fourth company. And as Peter Lynch once said, look around you and see where traffic's busy around stores. And TJ Maxx and Home Goods are very busy. And I want to know what you think about TJ Maxx. You know, I like TJ Maxx, and yes, and mine is very busy, too. I went there to try to get compression socks. They didn't have them. I ended up getting this kind of like Hanes underwear that I didn't really want. I don't know. I just probably apropos of nothing. But, uh, but I do say this. You got to be careful because they have a lot of European exposure, and that's why it's not as trustworthy as it used to be. But I'm coming for those compression socks. They told me they'd have them back. All right. Today's action is what peak inflation looks like. And it can be nirvana for a lot of different stocks. 
You should have seen it coming if you watch Mad Money, that is. All right, well, Mad Money tonight. After earnings, does AEP have what it takes to electrify your portfolio? I'm checking in with the CEO. Then could lower oil prices be in our future? That'd be something. I'm consulting the technicals to see where the hot commodity could be headed. And is the bear market in software finally coming to an end? I'll take a look at the recent deals in this space and give you my take. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreat in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a -a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visible visibility at indeed.com slash mad money. Just go to indeed.com slash mad money right now and support this show by saying you heard about indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash mad money. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. Until today, the utilities were crushing the market. Can it continue? These slow and steady stocks tend to thrive when we go into a Fed-mandated slowdown. Take Kramer, Fave, American Electric Power, AEP. The Ohio-based utility is up nearly 14% for the year. S&P's down nearly 12% over the same period. Imagine that gap. Just two weeks ago, AEP reported another solid quarter. Imagine said they were cautiously optimistic about the future. That's very typical. On the other hand, the utilities become less enticing if the Fed's beating inflation, and we don't get hit with many more big rate hikes. Still, this is a very well-run company, and we got some big news today. And for me, a little sad, but that's okay. Longtime chairman and CEO Nick Akins is passing the CEO title to his CFO, Julie Sloat, in January and transitioning to executive chairman. 
Well, we got to know, can the stock keep climbing with the leadership transition in this tricky environment? And let's find out what Nick's up to. So let's check in with Nick Akins, the chairman and CEO of American Electric Power, to get a better read on the business. Hey, Nick, I guess I'm a little sad. Tins was sad, but welcome back to me, buddy. Uh, Jim, great to be with you again. <laughs> so, Nick, uh, I have to ask you, um, uh, why, why a step up at this time? Uh, American Electric Power has been really terrific mm-hmm. under you. Yeah, so it's a succession planning process that's been going on for quite a while now. Uh, we we want to have ready uh, people ready to step into these roles, and we couldn't think of a, a better person. Our board uh, felt like Julie Sloat was the right person. And and after 11 years, uh, it's it's time to really move on and make sure that new generation of leaders can continue to f- flourish. And I have no doubt uh, the best is yet to come for AEP. Well, I, I think that's terrific that you're doing that. I do want to point out that over the period that you've been the head of American Electric Power, the company has really stressed uh, renewables without any uh, incentive or actually mandates from the federal government. I have said that your company is doing it because you and your team believe it's the right thing to do. Oh, absolutely, because there's no question our customers, our investors are certainly looking for that movement to a clean energy future and a de-risking of the portfolio going forward. And no one knows that better than Julie Sloat as well. So I fully expect that process to continue. Now, she will be uh, in charge of the period from uh, carbon emission reductions, 80 percent to climb by 2030. You both are confident that you can do that. That's a, you're a big utility. That's a gutsy prediction. Oh, absolutely. I, I, uh, the 16,000 megawatts of, of new renewables, we've already put in place 1,484. We're the largest uh, um, wind power project in North America. We have another couple of thousand megawatts that are already in the pipeline. And, of course, other requests for proposals for new uh, capacity to, to demonstrate our further commitment around that 16,000 megawatts. So there's no question it'll continue. And, and certainly legislation in Washington continues to, uh, to advance that picture. Okay, so Jeff, what do you think of the bill? Uh, some people feel like that it's, it's going to bust the budget. Other people feel like there's real uh, deficit reduction. What I care about from your point of view is, is this going to be truly a way to get cleaner skies and you know, control uh, climate in a way that we have not been able to for in this country? Yeah, certainly I think there's, a, there's some great opportunities here. First is obviously the renewables that we always think about in terms of wind and solar, but also it brings in an expansion supporting uh, not only small modular nuclear reactors and, and uh, certainly uh, storage applications that can exist. Those are key components of the future as we move to a clean energy economy. And I see that benefiting customers in terms of hedging um, whether it's high natural gas prices or, or other activities that can occur. So it really gives us a broader portfolio uh, to deal with. Now, are you putting um, small form nukes into that, into that plan, the, the 2026 plan? Because I know you've got about 25 bill. You will be doing it, huh? Yeah, we do, we do regular reviews of our integrated resource plans that we follow with the various commissions in the states that we serve, and nuclear will show up eventually. And obviously, one thing that's lost on uh, the, uh, the legislation is $40 billion of, um, of loans uh, from the federal government associated with these types of activities. That's important for us to be able to mitigate the impact to consumers as we go through this process. So uh, we see it as very positive. All right. Excellent. Well, Nick, uh, I do. Julie will come on our show. You have been a fixture 
you've been uh, your company's been a remarkable performer. You, I'm sure, will still be on Julie. Can I ask you whether she will come on the show after you uh, step up? Absolutely, she will. It's a tradition. And obviously, you want to know about the economy every quarter. So uh, we're going to continue to provide that. No question about it. And the economy, I, did, I didn't get to ask because of your, of your step up, but it seems like it still remains very strong. It does remain strong. Actually, our residential increased 1%. Our, it continues to increase uh, as a result of the stay-at-home, work-from-home environment that continues from a hybrid standpoint. On the commercial side, it's still at 4% increases, and industrials at 5%. And we're seeing 9 out of 10 sectors continue to grow. Uh, actually, the one that was down was hospitals, and you'd re- recognize that from post-COVID activities. But uh, it continues to grow. And with the CHIPS Act and certainly with this latest uh, uh, round of legislation, Legislation. I think it bodes well for more, more domesticated supply around the manufacturing industrial standpoint that will benefit our service territory. Well, look, let's leave it at that. You've been a great steward. All those terrific things are coming your way. And a lot of it's because you have some of the cheapest and most reliable power in the country. And a huge chunk of it is renewable. That's Nick Aikens, Chairman and CEO of American Electric Power. Congratulations, sir, on everything you've done for shareholders and for the skies. Thank you, Jim. Okay, Matt Money be back after the break. Coming up, when a current of good news leads to a waterfall in oil, take cover? Kramer seeks the truth off the charts. Next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It's packed with benefits to help unlock more value from your business purchases. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. All right, if you learn one thing from tonight's show, you have to know that when something sells off on good news, that's what I call a red flag. Last week, OPEC Plus approved a smaller-than-expected production boost, upping its supply quota by just 100,000 barrels per day. Analysts were looking for something several times higher. So, in response, of course, the price of oil jumped. But it couldn't hold on to those gains into the close and finish the day down a few bucks. Since then, well, it's basically been flat. Didn't do what it was supposed to do. So what the heck is going on here? Tonight, we're going off the charts with the help of our resident commodities expert, Carly Gardner, a brilliant technician who's the co-founder of the Carly Trading and the author of Higher Probability Commodity Trading. Now, remember, she called the exact top in oil. That's why we're back to her. She's been warning us of a commodity bust for months now, including the possibility of much lower oil prices. Is anyone looking for that? Well, 120, everyone thought it was going to go to the moon, not Carly. And after this OPEC meeting, her take is very simple. She thinks OPEC recognizes that we're already seeing global demand destruction for crude. So, of course, they don't want to increase supply too much, although they'll never declare publicly OPEC's a cartel. And all cartels do their best to maximize profits by keeping prices elevated. And at a time when central banks around the world are aggressively raising interest rates in order to hit the brakes on commerce, Garner's betting that OPEC no longer believes the global economy can support $100 crude. 
which just a few weeks ago we thought was gospel. Now, we already know consumers are cutting back. While the travel, travel's been red hot, anybody who's taking a vacation lately knows that it's a lot more of a pain in the neck than it was before the pandemic. The house of pain. Prices are high. The latest are long. Chaos is standard. We know the U.S. economy has been surprisingly resilient despite some real sauce spots, but the rest of the world is in real sad shape. All of this works against high oil prices. Don't forget to me for a second. Let's come at this from the supply side. Think about how oil got to the triple digits in the first place. Gardner points out that most of this year's oil rally was in response to international sanctions on Russian crude. Russia's invasion of Ukraine didn't disrupt the oil market by itself. The sanctions did. However, by all accounts, the Russians have been able to circumvent those sanctions by selling oil to China and, more importantly, India. See, that oil didn't just vanish. It didn't get locked up in Russia. It just got rerouted. At the same time, we're hearing rumors after rumors, another Iran nuclear deal, which could potentially bring millions of barrels of production back on the market. Plus, Garner notes, the U.S. rig count, which comes out on Fridays, has finally started to pick up steam. That is unexpected. Our domestic producers have been incredibly disciplined because they don't want to flood the market with supply and then push the price of oil down. But when oil stays this elevated this long, sooner or later, someone's going to start drilling. That was easy. Now, take a look at this West Texas Intermediate Crude. I think this is a very important chart because you're going to see numbers like you haven't seen in a long time. In the past, Garner predicted that oil would eventually return to its pre-Ukraine trading range. If not for the war, she thinks it would have struggled to break out above the low 90s, which previously acted as a ceiling of resistance. Okay, so you can tell this this is where she thought that oil would be stalled. Oil is now back to the low 90s after a brief dip to the high 80s late last week. As Garner sees it, crude has already returned to its historical trading range. And if we get another breakdown below 90, she wouldn't be surprised if that opens the door to an eventual decline way back to $60. So in other words, forget this. She's talking this. That's the historical comfort level for oil prices. It also marks the downtrend line from oil's highs in 2008. So she's taking a longer-term view. You can see that that's uh, symmetrical. Wherever oil might be headed, though, Gardner's confident this will be a wild ride. She expects a ton of volatility here. Traders are going to love this. Long-term, though, she sees oil headed lower. That's about what you'd expect during a Fed-mandated slowdown, especially now that the central banks around the world are also tightening. However, short-term, Gardner wouldn't be surprised if we get a nice bounce. That's what I want you to keep in mind, because that's the next thing that she thinks of them is a bounce. She thinks oil is approaching a price point where buyers are going to start looking for bargains. Plus, it could trade up on any negative headline about the Iranian negations faltering. It's possible we've already found that level, considering today's bounce, which was a surprise because oil started the day down. But even if oil has another leg down, Garner sees buyers stepping in somewhere near 85 a barrel, possibly 80 if things get ugly. Again, she's only predicting a short-term move here, a bear market bounce that can give you a $10 to $12 gain. But that's not nothing. A lot of people would trade that in, in an instant just to get that gain. I know that if you own some of the major oils, you're going to see a nice run there. And some of the permians, too. What makes her think that a bounce is imminent? And the bulls will want to hear this. So take a look at this monthly chart of West Texas crude with the Commodity Futures Trading Commission Commitment of Traders data. That's the so-called COT report. Okay, she uses that quite a bit. It's been very good for her. The line we're watching is the green one. Okay, 
uh, which shows you the net position of large speculators, meaning money managers. Garner points out that these large speculators have already unloaded nearly half of their net long positions in the oil futures. Right now, they're net long by about 200,000 futures contracts. In the past, whenever the net long position gets down to this level, oil tends to bounce. And here's what she's thinking. Okay, bounce, bounce. So therefore, she's thinking bounce. That's very important because a lot of people were kind of flummoxed that we didn't go continue there. You're going to get your chance to get out if you want to. We're thinking about that with the way for the travel trust. We're making that decision right now based on Carly's work. Now, I want you to check out uh, this is the chart of the seasonal pattern in West Texas crude. You can see that historically the oil futures tend to trade sideways to, the, to higher in the late summer and early fall. But Garner thinks this move will be temporary, in part because the seasonal pattern turns really ugly in August. So remember, you got to skedaddle if you get to this point. And that's part because the fundamentals have got much tougher on oil, even as you don't hear the, a lot of the analysts saying that. Now, when you zoom in on the daily chart, Oil has multiple support levels that could potentially trigger a sizable bounce before the downturn resumes. Crude was trading in the mid-high 80s before the sanctions on Russia catapulted it into the stratosphere. Garner says the sanctions pivot line currently sits at around $87. Sure enough, that's the level we bounced from late last week. In other words, there's a good chance we're in the middle of Garner's temporary bounce right now, which would take us back to here. Although she wouldn't rule out another near-term pullback to the mid to low 80s. As long as oil support in the mid 80s holds, then Garner believes we could see a run. This is where I might want to sell some for the trust. Anywhere from 97 to 102. Before the move sputters, though, and she thinks that we'll, uh, we need a positive change in the fundamentals to get oil back to the next cilium resistance around 110. In other words, the daily chart is moderately bullish. However, when this rally hits, Garner's adamant that you can't view it as a resumption of the bull market from earlier this year. Oil peaked two months ago. The raging bull market is gone. It's over. It's kaput. Instead, Garner recommends us using any short-term strength to lighten up on your oil exposure, which is what we're going to do for the CNBC Investing Club, because longer term, she thinks it's in trouble. Bad news for oil investors, but very good news for the Fed which is finally making progress in its fight against inflation, as we saw from today's better-than-expected CPI numbers. In time, Garner sees U.S. Treasuries headed back up in price, too. This is a price level, okay? Up means lower rates. Remember, oil has already unwound the invasion trade. But if you look at the chart of the 10-year, it's still a long way from pre-war levels. Currently, the 10-year yields just under 2.8%. Garner wouldn't be surprised if it goes back to <coughs> excuse me, to 2% or even lower as the price recovers. Here's the bottom line. The charts, as interpreted by Carly Garner, suggest that oil could be due for a short-term bounce, but over the next few months, she only sees it head lower, possibly much lower. That's exactly what the Fed needs to see. Let's go to Stacy in North Carolina. Stacy. <coughs> Thanks, Jim, for taking my call. I love your show, man. I appreciate what you do. The, the Thank stock you. I'm calling about the, the stock I'm calling about today is... Uh, the 52-week low, I mean, this 52-week low is 137, 52-week high of 288. It's currently at 217 today and has a 9.33% yield. The stock is Pioneer Natural Resources, ticker PXD. Is it a buy? I'm going to make it easy. Okay, this business I'm trying to make much larger for my channel trust, it actually yields 15%, and Scott Sheffield is fantastic. Uh, I'm the only person on TV who's actually trying to stifle, stifle a sneeze. What, those are the nice they ever sneeze. What do they do? Have a catnip or something? What do they do? Anti-catnip. But anyway, I like Pioneer very much. Actually, it's the cheapest of the oil companies that we follow. 
We've been building position for the Chapel Trust, and I think it's a buy, and I think it can go up to 250. All right, the charts, as interpreted by commodity expert Carly Garner, who, by the way, remember, called a top at 120, suggests that oil could be in for a short-term bounce. But ultimately, she thinks, sell, 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 because oil's headed much lower. Now, much more mad money in. The software space has turned into an M&A haven. So I'm breaking down the recent major deals and sharing all you need to know. Then the Elon Musk Twitter saga continues. Why does it tell us about uh, the market, the Delaware court, and what I think is only going to happen? I'm going to give you my take, and you're going to want to hear it. And all your calls rapid fire tonight's edition of the Lighting Round. So stay with Sneezer Kramer. Is the bear market in software finally over? This has nothing to do with today's terrific rally in response to lower than expected inflation and everything to do with takeovers. The enterprise software stocks have gotten so beaten down that they're being taken private left and right. The market might not have any interest, but private equity firms see the value here. They can't seem to resist. Now, we got the latest deal on Monday morning when a private equity firm called Vista Equity Partners announced an $8.4 billion deal to acquire an alpha probably you probably never heard of called Avalara, which makes tax compliance automation software. Now, look, I candidly, I cannot think of anything more boring as a business. But this deal is very exciting for the industry because it's the latest in a series of publicly traded software companies that have been snapped up by private equity buyers. So tonight I want to walk you through these because it's such an important element of this market. These acquisitions demonstrate that the software stocks have finally gotten cheap enough to be interesting again. And that's what I've been waiting for. Ever since the Fed declared war on inflation last November, I've been warning you away from fast-growing software plays with little or nothing in the way of, po- of profits. And you know what? Their stocks have been absolutely gutted because Wall Street has no idea how to value them in this environment. But private equity firms, they're different. They buy entire companies, take them private, spend a few years cutting costs, then bring them public again, ideally at a much higher price. And that often happens. See, they don't have to care about the Wall Street fashion show, except insofar as it creates long-term buying opportunities. And they won't be stopped by the antitrust department of the uh, antitrust division of the Justice Department because that only happens when private companies get uh, try to block somebody from making money, or more importantly, when two public companies that compete are merging, and then justice gets active. Now, I want you to take the most recent deal, and you'll understand what I'm saying. Avalara, that had 40% revenue growth last year, uh, along with a small earnings loss. This thing came public four years ago at $24, then saw its stock soar during the COVID year, flying all the way to $191 at its peak last November. But since the Fed turned hostile, the stock has been crushed, sinking to the 60s at its lows in June. However, we started hearing about private equity interest a month ago, which allowed Avalara, Avalara <laughs> to rally from the low 70s to the mid 90s. So in other words, Avalar, you have to understand, it looks like it wasn't a big deal uh, when it was announced, but the stock had already run. So when we learned Vista Equity was buying for uh, 93.50, that was actually a couple bucks below where the stock was trading, but only because the stock had already run on takeover rumors. So don't make it feel like it's a take under. What matters, though, is that Vista's valuing Avalar at about 10 times sales. That's the level where they found this one too enticing to ignore. 
It's not a bad price at all. It is down big from the highs of last year. Now, this is not the only big deal we've seen from Vista. See, back in January, they teamed up with the activist investors, whom we think are really smart, at a place called Elliott Management, and announced the acquisition of Citrix Systems. That's the original remote work software play. Vista is taking this thing private and merging it with another software company they bought years ago that I was also recommending called Tipco. They're paying $104 per share or $16.5 billion for Citrix. It's a big deal. Now, this is a more mature, slower-growing company than Avalara. Uh, and more importantly, Citrix is quite profitable. So the story's a little different. But this stock jumped from $110 at the end of 2019 to a high of $173 in the summer of 2020 before pulling back to the high 70s at its lows last December. In terms of valuation, at $104 per share, they're paying roughly five times sales for Citrix or a little less than 20 times earnings, which is far more relevant. You can see these, what they're paying. This is important because we're trying to show you graphically how inexpensive some of these are, are coming at. All right, then there's Tom and Bravo. That's another private equity firm that's been spending a fortune on software companies of late, taking them private left and right. Last Wednesday, they announced they would acquire Ping Identity. Remember Ping? They used to come on the show for $28.50 per share. It was an all-cash deal that values the company at $2.8 billion. Uh, this is a company that does cybersecurity for uh, Firm, it's, uh, I'd say it, it, it's a very niche cybersecurity company, handles identity management. You know what it's similar to? It's similar to Okta. You know we have them all the time. Ping grew at a 23% clip last year, and they turned a slight profit, too, although they're expected to lose money for the next couple of years. That's the kind of stock that you didn't want to own until this big spree has started occurring. Now, this one is a huge deal because Tom and Bravo is paying a 63% premium for Ping. That is very generous. Deal uh, values the company at about 8.4 times sales. This is actually the third major cybersecurity company that Tom and Bravo has acquired in the last 15 months. In April, they announced a deal to buy SailPoint Technology. That's a terrific company. It's another identity management play. That was a 48% premium to where the stock had been trading. Uh, it, that was it, nine, in, in the previous 90 days. Uh, this one's getting valued at 13 times sales. Before that, last year, Tom and Bravo spent $12.3 billion to buy one of our favorites, Proofpoint which mostly protects against threats via email. In a deal that closed last August, Proofpoint ended up valuing it at 10 times sales. That was a steal. I'm betting Tom and Bravo intends to combine these cybersecurity businesses into a single outfit that they can cross-sell, cut costs, then take the whole thing public again in a gigantic hit for them when Wall Street has a taste for tech. It's, uh, if that's what they're doing, I can tell you, this is a brilliant plan. And that's just cybersecurity. In March, Tom and Bravo agreed to sell out $10.7 billion for Anaplan. I remember when they came public, it kind of did nothing. Financial planning software play, though they negotiated down to $10.4 billion in June. Still, Anaplan is being valued at nearly 14 times sales. Not cheap for an unprofitable company with 25% revenue growth, but it was very well run, by the way. We're seeing regular takeover bids, too. Uh, just at yesterday, AppLovin, which helps app developers monetize their platforms, announced an unsolicited bid for Unity Software, letter U, like uh, Miami, you know, which is, but not really, which is used by video game designers. It was all stock deal. This was a little weird one because Unity shareholders would own a majority stake in the combined entity and Unity CEO would run it. Feels more like a takeover request than a takeover bid. Everyone Everyone pretended to think that they knew what was they were talking about when this happened. Believe me, no one knows. Making things more complicated, last month, Unity announced a deal to buy IronSource, which is an advertising technology play. App Lovin doesn't want to merge unless that deal gets canceled. 
What else? Well, how about do you think it's worth mentioning? Broadcom buying VMware, the king of virtualization software. Massive $61 billion deal. Part of Broadcom's plan to diversify away from semis and into software. What does this deal activity mean? Well, uh, well, because it means the software stocks have gotten too cheap. Cheap enough certainly to appeal to potential acquirers, even if they don't appeal to public investors like you or me. It's very hard to figure out where this group might bottom because so many of them are unprofitable. But the fact that private equities gotten very interested definitely means something. Of course, this earnings season has been a pretty mixed bag for software. We've had great numbers from Atlassian, Simple Team, and Cloudflare, NET, and ServiceNow, which, by the way, has been going up, up, up. I don't know if you noticed that. But then there have been duds like a company I really like, Twilio. It's uh, Jeff lost lost it. It's just I don't know. It was just not a great quarter from some really great guys. If the numbers are all right, though, I think this takeover potential can create a floor under the software stocks. They've finally gotten cheap enough for for deals to come into play. A couple of days ago, Jeffries published a great piece on software valuations going back to 2015. These stocks traded at eight times sales on average. By the highs last November, they were trading at nearly 19 times sales. That's way too high. Now, after the recent bear market, they're back at 7.5 times sales. In other words, they are on the cheap side historically. No wonder these private equity firms are interested. Again, it doesn't mean all the software stocks are buys. You're not running a private equity firm. Remember that? You can't just acquire the whole company yourself, fire half the workforce, then take it public again in a few years. But the existence of potential acquirers creates a floor underneath these stocks, making it much safer to speculate on the good ones, a more certain floor than just lower interest rates or peak inflation could give you. It's the floor, frankly, we've all been waiting for. The bottom line, the long software nightmare may finally be over. Although I still urge you to be selective with these things and stick with the ones that actually make money. So if they don't get bids, you won't be left holding the bag if the backdrop changes. Bad Money's back after the break. Coming up, Kramer takes your calls and the sky is the limit. It's a fast fire lightning round next. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski daddy. Time for the lightning round. Let's start with Tom in New York. Tom. Hello, Kramer. And booyah. I like that. There's a lot of spirit to that booyah. What's going on? the new studio, by the way. And with the Inflation Reduction Act going through Congress now and major uh, provisions for for, for solar and renewable energy in general. Uh, what is your take on First Solar? Well, I do think the First Solar's now had a run, and you have to wait for a pullback. I like the idea, but I also feel like I'm coming in too high if I tell you to buy it right here. I need to go to Jeremy in California. Jeremy! Yo, 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 booyah, Jimmy. What's happening? Coastal Cowboy coming at you. Lithium America stock from LAC's up 40% this month with a big court decision coming. Yeah, but they're losing money. And remember, even with today's CPI, we're not going to recommend stocks that have been perpetual money losers. Now I'm going to go to Mike in Tennessee. Mike! Jim, thanks for taking my call. I have an industrial with good earnings, good dividend, low P.E. It's 50% off. It's 52-week high. Is it time to buy TSE, Trinzio? Man, you know, Frank Frank Mitch from Fermian just had some pretty discouraging comments. You know, look, five times earnings. That usually means that the earnings are going to get cut. 
So I'm going to have to say no to that one. I'm sorry. Let's go to Dan in New York. Dan. Hey, Jim. How's it going? Thank you for having me. How are you? Good, man. Thank Enjoying you. the Mets. I hope the Phillies, uh, you know, pull it out. Also. Mets are good. But, uh, if Mets are good. I can't help it. What's up? <laughs> uh, Royalty Farmer. I've been sticking with it for two years. It doesn't move. You know what? And it's finally working. Don't you think that's amazing? I a lot of people give it up. I said it was good. I said it was inexpensive. It's working. Hold on to it. It's going higher. And that, ladies and gentlemen, the conclusion of the lightning round. The lightning round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, what does the man with $7 billion buy himself? That's just what Kramer wants to find out. Next. As much as Elon Musk wants to deny that his takeover bid for Twitter is still valid, you don't sell $7 billion worth of Tesla stock like he did this week unless you need the cash to pay for something else, something more expensive than a beach house or even an island. And I have to tell you, unless you can dig up a deeply incriminating memo from Twitter saying, let's defraud Elon by showing him fake numbers, I think the dollar chancery court is going to force him to buy this thing. I know that sounds extreme, but that's what I'm thinking is going to happen. I get why he wants to back out. Twitter's doing quite poorly financially, but he's the one who pursued this deal aggressively, not them. He's the one, and he doesn't give himself much wiggle room. You'd know that if you read the 126-page plaintiff's reply to verify counterclaims, although I don't recommend it, not exactly a page turner. Before I get into why, you need to know that the Twitter deal is no reason for anyone to sell Tesla. The stock acted very well during Musk's sales, even uh, although it didn't hurt that he did make some very encouraging comments at the annual meeting on August 4th, talking about a potential buyback. I think he can just gradually sell stock over time if his partners walk away and he needs to raise more cash. But the deal, I think, is almost certainly going to happen. If you want to go to court in Delaware and break an airtight merger agreement, you're going to need a very, 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 very good reason. And Musk does not have that. Musk's chief claim is that he was hoodwinked by everything Twitter did in order to convince him to buy their faltering operation. It's, it's actually the exact opposite, though. Or as Twitter argues, it's implausible and contrary to facts as it sounds. See, the whole thing started as a takeover bid, a takeover bid by Musk. It wasn't Twitter going to Musk. Twitter didn't want to sell until Musk made them an offer they couldn't refuse. Now he's simply trying to escape the merger agreement because market conditions have changed. It's not Twitter's fault that Musk made an offer before he looked at anything and only gave the company 24 hours to respond, or he said he'd present his offer directly to the shareholders. In other words, can you name a hostile raider who got information from the company before it made the hostile raid? Of course not. Can you name a company that was given only 24 hours to make a decision and was supposed to share information with the raider? Of course not. You see, it doesn't even matter whether you think Twitter gave Musk accurate information or not. Musk was like a bull in a china shop with a sign that says, you break it, you own it. Since he's got buyer's remorse, he's been whining that Twitter didn't show him anything. Again, he's not even entitled to anything. But Twitter's been giving him everything he wants and more because they want the deal to close desperately. I say, and more, because they gave him, you'll love this, they gave him an extensive, well-prepared, and detailed summary of all the things Musk wanted to know about. 
especially the false and spam account treatment. And then Musk admitted he hadn't even read it. How could he have said they have no procedures of any consequence when he didn't deign to read what their procedures were? Again, remember, the court would only rule in his favor if there was a Twitter email saying something like, let's lie our darn fool heads off and claim that there are almost no spam accounts, even though we know that 20 percent are spam and worthless. Now, what I can tell you, I can say pretty confidently that memo does not exist. That's why I think that the Delaware chancellor will say that Musk must buy Twitter. And if he doesn't, they're just going to take the money to forcefully close on the deal. The rally in Twitter stock just now reflects this pending decision. If I were Musk, I'd sit down with Twitter's management and negotiate a new price right here, right now. Otherwise, this document makes it clear that Musk doesn't have a leg to stand on. No wonder he's selling stock to raise money. He's one ruling away from having to sell a lot more Tesla. And he's got to be ready or the chancellor will sell it, it himself. They'll sell the stock right underneath him. Yes, the chancellor can do that. They'll sell it for him. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. And I promise you to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.